Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Drivers, start your engines! Hit the pace car! What for? Because you hit every other damn thing out there, I want you to be perfect! When I'm driving, I got a guy on the radio who talks to me. It's him. He talks to me. He didn't slam you, he didn't bump you, he didn't nudge you, he rubbed you. And rubbing son is racing. Hey race fans, welcome to Drafting the Circus on the Hoobazoo Radio Network. My name is Frank Santoroski, I'll be your host for the next hour as we discuss everything racing. And we did have some racing this weekend, 24 hours of it to be exact, and we'll get into that in a little bit. First off, I want to let you know I'm joined in the studio tonight by Mr. Gray Warren from Richard Childress Racing. Uh, Mr. Richard Uden, race car uh, engineer extraordinaire, Joey Barnes from IndyCar.com and Motorsports Tribune, and the NASCAR correspondent over there at Motorsports Tribune, Seth Eggert. How is everybody tonight? Doing great, man. Doing good. All right. Great to have you all here. So before we talk about the racing, I I would be remiss if I I did not mention a neat little thing that our good friend Keith Hayes, who is uh, one of the producers here at Drafting the Circuits, uh, put together, and you do realize it's the Super Bowl weekend. Uh, Keith's a big football guy. A lot of us love football as well. But um, Keith was watching this news story um, where during the NFC uh, championship game, some Minnesota fans had put uh, some Vikings gear onto the giant uh, statue of Rocky Balboa that sits outside of Franklin Financial Field there in Philadelphia. And then, of course, after the Philadelphia Eagles won that game, while they tore all that Minnesota crap right off of there and put a proper Eagles jersey on the Rocky statue. Now, Keith, he lives in Brockton, Massachusetts, which is right up there in Patriots territory. And in Brockton, Massachusetts, they have a giant statue of Rocky Marciano, who was the the real Rocky or the non-fictional Rocky boxer. Uh, So Keith came up with this idea and it's called the Rocky versus Rocky. And Keith contacted the mayor of Brockton, Massachusetts, and said, hey, why don't we do this bet with those cats down in Philly, and whoever wins the Super Bowl will get to adorn that the Rocky statue in the opposing city with uh, our team gear. Well, long story short, the mayor of Brockton contacted the mayor of Philadelphia. The bet's on. Uh, you know, The next day it was on ESPN, CBS. Uh, it was all over the news. Um, it's, uh, the hashtag is Rocky versus Rocky. So, but this is a neat little thing and it's our friend Keith Hayes 
producer of Drafting the Circuits, uh, who, who came up with this. And uh, now Mark Wahlberg is involved, as is uh, Sylvester Stallone. So it would be pretty neat to see how this thing shakes out. But uh, well, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about racing. So uh, let's talk about the Rolex 24, um, the kickoff to the season. Uh, you know, a, a ton of world-class drivers in the field there. But at the end of the day, it was uh, the Action Express Cadillac taking the overall win. Uh, with uh, Felipe, I hope I say this right, Albuquerque, Christian Fittipaldi, and J.R. Barbosa. So, um, I mean, who wants to chime in and talk a little bit about it there, Joey? Because you're not allowed to say football, so. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a great race. I mean, obviously, there's, uh, there's a lot less cautions in it than, uh, than a NASCAR race. So, you know, I think it's fun that we can run 24 hours in an IMSA race and get away with very few cautions, but NASCAR can't go 300 laps without, you know, 15 cautions. But I, I tell you what, the, the racing was good. We saw a lot out of a lot of different people. Uh, we saw a lot of attrition as well as the 24-hour races typically play out. And Action Express gets the one, too. I mean, it's kudos to them because, you know, we knew Cadillacs were going to be strong for the weekend. We knew they were going up against Team Penske, who was making kind of an accurate debut there with the DPI. And honestly, I pretty pretty stout race through and through. Not not a lot of contact, even though there was a lot of aggressive racing. Um, you know, they they put together on they put together a pretty good show. And be remiss to say that it, you know Lamborghini gets their first win there with the GTD uh, category. They went from last to first in in that group in that class. And then obviously uh, the big news coming out of it. Besides Alonzo, because that's obviously where everybody's eyes were, but uh, Chip Ganassi Racing getting their 200th victory as an organization at Rolex. It was a class victory. And what was exciting about that is the fact that those four GTs, because in one car you had the 66 and you had the 67, and uh, Bordet's in one and Dixon's in the other. And I remember we were 12 hours into this race in the, in the late hours of the night. And you could see they were still within three-tenths of a second of each other. Like one lap, Bordet would run the fast lap. The next lap, it'd be Dixon. And they were just all over each other. So it was cool to see two four-time IndyCar champions go at it and um, put on a good show. And at the end of it, Dixon kind of got the better of it. Yeah, good strategy move for the 67 team there with about, oh, I think about uh, two and a half hours late uh, to, uh, left in the race. They made a... They made a, a, a strategy move, and it got them out in front. But but you're right. Those two cars, the 66 and the 67, you know, turning very close lap times. But it, it throughout most of the race, they were never more than, than three or four seconds apart on the racetrack. And uh, I think the, the largest margin between them was, was at the very finish when uh, – when the uh, 67 car pulled out about uh, about a 12-second gap, and that's where they pretty much where they finished. But, yeah, uh, pretty impressive for Ganassi to win 200th, and that's 200 wins. And that, that's, you know, those wins span the globe, really. Uh, IndyCar, NASCAR, uh, IMSA, uh, 24-hour Le Mans, 24 hours of Daytona several times. And then he's even, I think he's got a couple of wins in uh, the World Rally cars. So, yeah, quite, quite an impressive feat for, for Ganassi. And going back to the Cadillacs, uh, they were having issues with their engines with overheating the 5.5-liter engine. Uh, Spirit of Daytona Racing failed to finish because of the overheating. 
and they were one of the fastest in testing. Meanwhile, the two Action Express cars, they went behind the wall a couple times and had a NASCAR-style cooldown unit that NASCAR mm-hmm. teams use during qualifying just to shock the engine and cool it down. And yep. I, I just thought that was impressive that they were able to keep their engines cool long enough to make it to the finish. And speaking of making it to the finish, wasn't Roger Penske on the war wagon the entire 24 hours? That's what they said, 24 hours straight. He didn't take a break, didn't go to the hotel, didn't go to the motorhome. He sat on the pit box throughout. And uh, that's that's pretty impressive at 80 years old. I hope My he did a bathroom break in there somewhere. Um, I'm sure he did, but he didn't go far. <laughs> I, I, I tell you what was impressive, though, uh, Graham Rahal was on the IndyCar teleconference call earlier, and that got mentioned. And he said what was crazy is after all of that, uh, turn right around, and he has breakfast in Ireland, and then he has lunch in Germany. And, and he just said that it's crazy to see the kind of schedule that, that Roger does and just the work ethic is something that a lot of the younger generation could learn from today and just try to instill in themselves. So, yeah, Roger Penske, top class and, and clearly a leader by example, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you can't say enough about it. And at 80 years old, still still digging. I mean, that to me, that uh, he's my hero, no doubt. But let me touch on the Cadillac thing. I tried to get some information from some of the guys at ECR uh, about what they felt the uh, the problem was, and really haven't nobody's really that really hadn't got into the autopsy uh, on it yet. But one of the things that they theorized these cars have two radiators, and they're not they're not uh, they're uh, in, in the way they're positioned on the car, they they do tend to pick up a lot of brake heat. And another thing uh, that that uh, particularly happened on the uh, the winning car, uh, it went through the uh, grass uh, when the rain came about 8 o'clock uh, Saturday night, and they had an off-track excursion, and they got a lot of debris and grass and dirt and sod in the in the, the inlet ducts, and they think that, that contributed to the first overheating incident, and uh, then once those alloy engines get hot like that, it, it, in some cases, it's really, really hard to get them to get them cooled back down, but they were able to do it and, and, and nurse it through, and I mean, that speaks to the to the durability of the uh, of the engine, and boy, they were they were bad fast, too. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the other things that, that speaks volumes about this race, obviously, there's not a lot of incidences, we touched on that, but Usually there's always one or two cars that manage to go through relatively trouble-free and everybody else playing catch-up. And usually it's one or two cars that are that are just kind of negotiating track position here at the end. And this is the first race I can remember where every car spent a substantial amount of time behind the wall or on pit road. And to see a team that, that does this, they still put a, what became a record, 808 laps on yeah, track. That's remarkable. Uh, yeah, broke the old configurate the the current configuration came in in '92, and I think the overall record was 762. Um, so to break something by literally what is that over 50 laps? Uh, it's just remarkable to me, especially considering the amount of issues that plagued every single team up and down the grid. Uh, we had 50 cars in this race, and to see to see what they were able to do was phenomenal. Um, one of the other things that kind of came out of this, and we all kind of knew it was coming, is literally the next day after the race, we heard that Fernando Alonso 
was confirmed for with Toyota in the WEC entry for the uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans. So his quest to chase the Triple Crown continues, and he'll run a few more races on the WEC schedule beyond Le Mans. But outside of that, you know, his legend continues to grow. But I'll say this is uh, we're all paying attention to Fernando Alonso, but should Montoya, Juan Pablo Montoya, get the expected call to go do Le Mans, he would actually be the first one, should he win Le Mans, to get the Triple Crown since Graham Hill, having already won Monaco, already won Indy. Um, so, so all eyes are on Alonso, but let's not forget about, about what Montoya has accomplished over a good career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and JPM made a point of mentioning that the other day. He said, you know, I'm actually closer to this thing than Alonso. So, but, uh, now, Richard, you've got some comments. I want to bring you into the conversation as well. Richard, what's yeah, on your mind? Very quickly, um, a couple of points. On the Alonso thing, I mean, the, the, the Le Mans announcement was big enough. Um, and it's apparently it's a two-year deal, so he's doing 18 and 19 at uh, Le Mans with Toyota. But it's also, he's doing a pretty much a full schedule this year in the uh, WEC series. I think there's only one race he's missing because that clashes with uh, an F1 race later in the year. So outside of that, he's pretty much running two full-time series this year, which is the uh, first time in a long time that's been done. And again, I think good for the sport and good for the diversity of the drivers, get them out there, get a bit more exposure to some of these other series and get a bit more exposure for the drivers. But going back to um, the Rolex 24, w- wondering what your guys' thoughts are. I know you mentioned, obviously, that both of those Action Express cars spent a little bit of time behind the wall there, having their engine sort of nursed a little bit towards the end of the race. But do you think a certain amount of that was just being overly cautious? You know, they, they, they knew they had such a lead that they really didn't want to take too much of a risk with it and just thinking, you know, we've got an opportunity to go out there and do this. Let's bring them behind the wall. Let's cool everything down and let's get them back out there. You know, was it a crit- was it a mission critical thing or just was it? Hey, let's not have any mistakes. I mean, I I look at that scenario and really it comes down to look at the the experience. I mean, you got Fittipaldi, uh, Barbosa, Albuquerque. Uh, although I probably butchered his name there. Um, thanks, Frank, for getting that instilled in my head. But, hey, look, um, we we've all established none of us can pronounce it right, but. You know, we all look. We, we all look towards Alonzo. We all looked at Pinsky. We all looked at the Taylors, and we honestly nobody was looking at this lineup. And we're always thinking that it's going to be the young guys because they're going to be the ones that can sustain the twenty-four hours and they'll have the energy to to do a twenty-four hour. But we continue to see Barbosa, Fittipaldi, and and Felipe do what they're doing and and winning races I, it's it's phenomenal to see and i think it speaks volumes to what action express has continued to do i think this was their third uh rolex 24 that they've collected so um you know i think it comes down to just the experience being able to manage the car knowing how far to push the limit what to do the second car was having to baby it on that last bit um because i, for, I forgot who it was uh, that was in that car and um, but he was holding off third place, and by, by also having to save fuel, and he ended up having to save fuel to make it to the end. Um, uh, for some reason, the name Morrison comes to mind, but I don't think that's right. Uh, Middleton. But Middleton. Uh, thank you. And um, so yeah, I mean, he was managing it. And he was babying the throttle and trying to get all he could for fuel mileage. But as far as um, as far as Albuquerque goes, I think there was a little bit of babying, but with the experience. I mean, how much do you really have to to push? Yeah, and, and, you talk- and the. And I'm sorry. Now, for Felipe, 
this is his first overall win. He's been he's been yeah. in, the, in the second car or in the car that's had trouble. While you know, uh, Fittipaldi and Barbosa have have taken overall wins. Felipe has always come up just a little bit short. So for him, this was pretty exciting. And and uh, you know, I had read an interview with him after the thing where he was like thinking, well, what's going to go wrong now? What's going to go wrong now? But they led pretty comfortably for about the last nine hours. So. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. You know, good on him getting that monkey off his back and uh, taking the overall win. Did I, uh, very quickly, did I also see that um, Fittipaldi, he's, throughout the season, he's going to sort of step back from driving, he's going to go more into a sort of commercial role within uh, Action Express? Yeah, Yeah, I I, I heard him say something like that in Victory Lane. He's not saying retirement yet, but he's certainly going to be calling it it pretty soon. And, And speaking of retirement, Scott Pruitt retired after the race. Uh, just one more thought on the Rolex. Uh, Gray, you had mentioned the rain Saturday night, the brief shower. I was actually very impressed uh, by one of the Corvette cars. They never came in to pit for uh, rain tires. They stayed out on slicks throughout the entire mm-hmm. rain shower. And granted, they lost about 10, 20 seconds a lap. But it was a strategy call to try to get ahead of the four GTs. Uh, ultimately, they didn't. But going to what Richard was talking about before the show, world-class drivers, that was just very impressive on slick tires on that wet of a track. Yeah, that was. And, and you, you talk about, I'm, I'm going to amplify on, on uh, Joey's talk about uh, experience. You know, and experience in this race is key. You, you don't have to go back too far and look at, you know, the greats like Hurley Haywood and, and Al Holbert, what they did down there for years and years, and how many 24-hour wins that they have. So, yeah, I think I think in a, in a 24-hour race, experience is, is key, you know, in, in, you know, managing the car, managing yourself, and, and, and all the things that, that, that are thrown at you in a 24-hour race. And, and like I said, you can't beat experience in, in, in these shows. And another thing about Ganassi stuff – you know, the, there were nine GTLM cars in the field, and three of them finished on, on the lead lap and, and ran that way most of the race. The 66, the 67, and one of the Corvettes was was not too far behind. So, yeah, that that, that not only – we talk about world-class talent, you know, driver talent, but we had some world-class team talent and, and manufacturer talent in that race as well. And it's, uh, you know – Gray will sort of, um, you know, probably uh, understand where I'm coming from here. It's the concept, especially in an endurance race and 24-hour race, of team execution. 
you know, knowing what's going to happen, pl- having a plan in place, as Action Express did there, where their engines were overheating, they knew, probably knew that it was a concern, and they prepared themselves, and they had a cool-down unit of some sort. It's going through these sort of stages, so almost your your race is a non-event. It's just execution, and, and the guys that get that execution right and get it repetitive and get it well-planned out, as they shown this weekend, they're the, or last weekend, sorry, they're the guys that, you know, typically come out on top. There again, experience, experience yep. from uh, drivers and experience from from the garage make, makes a world of difference. Yeah, this was the uh, one of my final thoughts on the Rolex. This is probably the healthiest manufacturer field that I've seen in sports car racing for the Rolex 24 in quite a while. I mean, we've seen Ferrari have their Ferrari Challenge, and we've seen Lamborghini with the Serpa Trofeo, a lot of other you know the Porsche GT3 Cup. A lot of different uh, manufacturers have their own cups and their own their own championships. But to see Lamborghini kind of step onto the scene a little bit more, to see Ferrari, I think they had four um, four Ferraris out there in uh, one of the GT classes. I'm going to forget the hell out of which one. But you know, combine that with Porsche and, and what they've done, along with Penske coming into the fold. And an Acura, they even said it during the broadcast. You know, they aim to be in sports car racing uh, forever. Now, forever is a long time, so I don't know how we'll see on that one. But to, to unify with Penske right out of the gate um, and then Cadillac to continue to push their brand, I think it's it's incredible to see the kind of manufacturer support that Rolex has finally been given that it was really missing out on for a few years. Yeah, and I, I thought about that too because there's 20 prototype cars, 21 uh, GTD cars, and just and nine GTLM cars. And I think, you know, it speaks to the overall health of the series. It, it's it's pretty good, I think. But I, I'm, I was curious to why there wasn't uh, as many uh, GTLM uh, cars, why there weren't more uh, of those cars versus the, the other two, uh, two, uh, other two classes. Any, you got any thoughts on that, Joey? I think a lot of it just is down to the rules, and yeah. when you when you look at some things that are better suited, like some cars are better suited to run like the Continental Tire race that happened on Friday, I, I think that those things make more sense economically for, for them, so that way they don't have to get too crazy with the rules. I mean, there was something said, uh, the GTLM class with the four GTs uh, running, they haven't had to alter that car Um very much since its inception and i think that speaks volumes like they haven't had to evolve it year over year over year it's just been a slow moving transition for them so they they obviously created a good baseline and i think that's what's missing for a lot of these teams that are trying to break into something like gtlm is finding that good solid baseline to where you're not having to spend countless amounts of money year over year to try to just keep up with with something like the ford gt because essentially that's the third year third consecutive year they've run that that basic chassis um yeah i mean they started off at lamar 2016 and if i remember right lance stroll's actual first start uh was with ganassi uh in the rolex 24 rather um and that was the last year that they were in the prototype if i recall so uh, yeah but essentially yeah third year okay we got a little a little bit of dead air there so um you know speaking of a series with a lot of manufacturer involvement there there was another kind of under-the-radar news story that uh, came out today, and that was the introduction of the new Formula E car. Did you guys get a chance to look at it? Yeah, yeah. we have. Yeah, yeah. so uh, it's kind of interesting. There's really mixed reviews on this. A lot of your 
say you're old timers and whatnot think this thing is just butt ugly. But but as I look at this thing, you know, it's, it looks like something straight out of a video game that would really appeal to young people. You know what I mean? Like like my my, uh, my son like Gray. Like Gray. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it looked like some. It looked like something from the movie Tron, right? It, it did. Yeah. I mean, it, or it, even the Batmobile. Or look a little bit like the yeah the Batmobile from the the newer, um, you know. It, but I, you know it's it's it's, it's kind of neat. I think they're going to do away with car swaps. Uh, they, used to, they used to do car swaps on the pit stops. Now they're going to go back to battery swaps. Uh, uh, interesting enough, you know, Formula E is really not uh, gained a niche in the amongst uh, hardcore race fans uh, because they, you know we miss the sounds of racing. Um, the top speed isn't quite there. The uh, the cars can only run about twenty minutes on a charge. Uh, but but again, this is the future of the road car. Uh, what we're seeing in Formula E, and and to some extent, I it was an old timer who was writing a comment said that yeah, it kind of exposes what's uh, what's not quite ready yet for road cars uh, in electric cars. So uh, uh, it's interesting to see. If you, Interested to see if you guys have any thoughts on it, but this, the Formula E, is, is a series that has a lot of manufacturer um, interest in there. So, uh, any of you guys take it away? Well, I think, yeah, I, I think, think too. Well, go ahead, Richard. I, I think it's it's inevitable. It's, it's something that um, you know, unlike a lot of these other sort of pop up series that you know have appeared over the last 10, 15 years, like A One GP and stuff like that. You know the. Um, Formula E has the FAA backing. It has manufacturer backing. It's it, it sort of it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, the money that's being thrown around now is is pretty aggressive, and some of the teams that are are involved are big, you know, historic racing teams. Uh, so, so, so it's going to generate that attention. And as more and more drivers go over there, you know, you've got a number of ex Formula One drivers in there now. Jean-Éric Verne's in there. Uh, Sebastian Buemi's in there. Um, Lots and lots of, of sort of uh, you know XF1 drivers in there, and I mean this this car can shift. Um, I think they're talking about top speeds around 300 kilometers an hour. So what's that in miles an hour? Just 180-ish, something like that, maybe a little bit higher. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's going to be an impressive machine, and to again to do away with the uh, um, the back, the car change midway through the race will help. I mean that's the one thing that I think belittles the sport a little bit in all fairness that it, it's sort of like everybody criticizes um you know electric cars for not having a big range and then they turn around and say hey look we've got an electric racing series and oh look we don't have a big range in this either so that's a massive help to them you know richard and, and too and you can you can speak to this too i, I think it is we know electric cars are the coming thing in, in 10 15 20 years down the road they're going to be more prevalent on the road and that's, I think that's why the manufacturers are, are, are involved, because they can actually learn from from this and apply this to, to their road cars. And, Richard, you know, you, uh, you've, you've been involved in this at RCR, the battery technology that we use. And, of course, we're getting, you know, making them smaller and getting more power and more longevity out of them. And, and of course, um, battery, battery technology is going to, going to continue to, to, to prevail yeah, I think interesting uh, sort of side note. When I was uh, when I was working back in the UK with Williams F1 team, they were telling me a story when they first developed the Kurs battery system. 
they had um, engineers come over from Toyota uh, who have obviously had a you know big history in hybrid vehicles with Prius and the like and uh, yeah they were uh, they were quite some way behind what you'd see in a road car so in a way the road car electric vehicles you know what you see Tesla and doing and what BMW have done with the i-series and you know you've got the Chevy Volt and the the Nissan Leaf and cars like that you know probably these manufacturers road manufacturers are probably further ahead than than even Formula E is in ways I mean the, the advantage that a Formula E has is it has a faster rate of development um, it can it can catch up far quicker but it'd be uh, it'll be interesting to see where they get with those cars and where would they go with them and I think the one thing that nags me and, and sort of keeps playing in the back of my mind with the whole Formula E thing is, why isn't there a Tesla team? I don't know if anybody's ever asked that question. But why hasn't Elon Musk got uh, involved in that? They are not interested in uh, racing. They're interested right now in developing that semi-truck. Well, yeah, you, 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 all you have to do, I mean, you know, the, in all fact, my understanding is that the Jaguar Formula E team is being run by Williams uh, Advanced Engineering Group. So they don't need all they need to do is stick some cash under somebody's nose and get them to put a Tesla badge on the front of it. They don't need to have resources and engineers and, and all that sort of. I mean, if they wanted to, obviously. But uh, it's, I, I'm surprised that they. Have, I think if if they get involved, it would be a huge boost. Mind you, it could be look pretty bad on their part if they get got involved and didn't win. Um, so. Uh, I can understand the political side of it, but uh, it would be great if they did get involved, and I think it'd be a huge boost for the series. I think that company now is all focused on their on the space frontier right now, with everything he's doing with his with SpaceX and and all that too. So you know, well, his tunnels and his everything else he's building. Yeah, maybe yeah, he'll do it one day. You know, after he conquers all this, he'll he'll he maybe he'll try it then. I mean, I look at this series with the with the car coming in. A, I think it's a huge boost for the series because the number one turnoff for me was, as Richard alluded to, just the car swap. Like halfway through a race, you're jumping out of one car, hopping in another. It was very gimmicky. Um, at the end of the day, you've got top quality drivers that are involved in the series. Guys who've been a part of F1 in some form form or another. Guys who've tested with F1, and I think that. The car just needed to get catch up to the driver talent, and I think we're starting to do that. The old car, I believe, if I recall, tops out around 140 miles an hour. This one's supposed to do, like like Richard said, about roughly 180, 170, somewhere in there. And I think that the car performance kind of getting a little bit edgier with the design works. We see a halo, um, but we see how the halo, in some ways, what you don't see on the F1 side is the halo would just look very odd. But in this design, the halo kind of meshes very nicely with the design of the car. Not saying that I'm a fan of the halo. I would rather see a windscreen. But as good as you could possibly design it to go to go well with, they've done it with this. The, the back V, I like that design as well. Um, I don't necessarily agree with wheel guards. That looks a little DW12-ish, I guess you could say, with the Kardashians on the back. Um but overall, this car is going to shorten up and get closer to the driver talent that, that wheels it. And let's not forget that this is essentially the future of F1 at some point or another, which I can't imagine when that day is going to come, but we all know it's going to happen. And I think it speaks volumes to see what Audi and Jaguar and other teams that get involved with this, they're essentially going to be ahead of the curve. And you could almost look at this and say, well, with Ferrari and 
and Mercedes not necessarily getting so involved in Formula E. McLaren can't get involved necessarily because they're actually doing the technologies for all Formula E, and that's part of the reason McLaren doesn't step in. Um, and Zach Brown confirmed that at Coda last year on the reason why. It makes you wonder if maybe Jaguar and Audi and teams like that and you know Mahindra, maybe those are the teams that we look at in 50 years, and those are your powerhouses. Those are the people we look back on like we do with McLaren and Williams and Ferrari and and even what Mercedes has done. And then that kind of makes you wonder, well, when Ferrari and Mercedes, when do they jump ship? Because they're going to get left behind on the boat if they don't start to move in this direction. So, um, But overall, it's a good concept. I'm in favor of it, and that's coming from a guy who's not necessarily in favor of Formula E as a whole. Um, we got to find some way to put some artificial noise in there, I think. Yeah, they sound like that's, power wheels. Yeah, I mean, that's that's probably the only other criticism I have. I enjoy the racing as a whole, um, but you know, especially when we're going to get a little bit more speed, so that way we don't have to just see them mesh the gas the entire time and have to manage the power cells. I think it's good that we're starting to develop and get along with this. Now, with the growing popularity of Formula E and the manufacturer support, do you think one day there could even be uh, electric series in NASCAR or in IMSA? Uh, at some point, I, I mean, there's there's a lot of talk that NASCAR is already looking at those kind of things just to prepare. I don't know. I mean, Gray might know a little bit more, but I mean, I've heard rumblings about them trying to prep for something by 2030. Yeah. But um, you I know, mean, it's, it's inevitable. I mean, the 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 uh, the gasoline-powered engine is is it, it'll be a dinosaur. Where it may not happen in our generation, but it, our kids, our children will see it in in, in theirs and in their children. And our grandchildren will will uh, will see it definitely. Yeah, I think it's I think it's inevitable. You coming down the road somewhere. We may not see it, but it's coming. Um, just one sort of final thought, I guess, on the Formula E, unless anyone's got anything else. But uh, you mentioned there McLaren not having interest in, in Formula E specifically. I mean, in a way, they're actually the people that have done the hard work for these new cars. So um, Williams Advanced Engineering has lost the contract on the battery development, yeah. and now that's now been bought out by McLaren. So McLaren's doing the full drivetrain. So in a way, they're getting everything they need to get out of Formula E for their electric you know, sports car, for want of a better word. Um, yeah, yeah. I just meant like as a not not as a team, yeah, but sure. as a as a technology group. Yeah, sure. But uh, yeah, so they, in a way, they turn around and say, "Well, you know, we won't gain anything from you know running an extra team." So that they're they're gaining all they need to gain from uh, you know from, from the battery development side. Plus, if they start winning, they're going to face a lot of those criticisms of having competitive advantage, and that's something Zach Brown alluded to. If we go in there and we start kicking everybody's ass, it's not going to look good, and there's going to be political questions, and of course, let's be honest, with it being affiliated with the FIA, there's going to be a lot of rumors, and those are things that you just don't want to deal with and headaches that you don't want under your microscope. So, but well, Yeah, I was saying that, and on the Formula 1 side, for the last... 12 years, I think it is, maybe even a little bit longer, maybe 13 years. McLaren have been the sole manufacturer for the spec ECU and the electrical system, which every Formula 1 car runs. So there's certainly no sort of back-channeling of data there that we know of. Um, going from uh, uh, you know the McLaren electrical 
support engineers, you know, through to McLaren Technology and then through to the Formula One team. So uh, it's certainly not something that they would be scared of doing. I think I think that's a I wouldn't say that's an excuse, but that's a you know they could get work around that reason quite easily because they've done it you before. Know, you know what I like about this situation though with the FIA is that they've they've essentially diversified themselves across the board. Like you've got Rally, you've got WEC, you've got F1, which is great for the current fan, and you've got Formula E, which is the future. You don't see, like NASCAR's got their hands in IMSA, and they've obviously got Cup and Xfinity and Truck. Cup and Xfinity, you essentially see the same show. It's just a longer race on Sunday. And then Trucks is, is a very unique kind of series in itself. It provides a little bit of different racing. They don't have a situation right now where they're investing in something for the future. They're trying to invest and rebrand themselves to, to decorate for the future. You know, and we'll get into some of the other things. I know Seth's going to talk a little bit about some of that, but when you look at this, they don't have the money invested to create a new series right now to, to build themselves towards an electric investment an electric powered series to build for 2030. This is going to be, you know, we've moved to digital dashes in the cup series and a few other things, but we haven't done anything to really completely diversify the brand. And so I'm kind of wondering what NASCAR's next move is because we see what the FIA is doing. And obviously it's an international governing body versus one that's just focused on North America. But with NASCAR branding themselves to Europe and Canada and other places trying to be more global, I got to think that at some point we're going to see them make an emphasis on that. Yeah, right now NASCAR seems to be more uh – more in developing talent than they are developing equipment. That's that seems to be to me where they're where they're where they're putting you know the, if you if you guys say they're putting their where their eggs are in that basket and that that seems to be right. So we will see. I think I think there's still time to do it, and I think they're going to kind of see how the manufacturers go because NASCAR's always been driven to a degree by you know the the car the the American car manufacturers and what they do, and they and they'll. They'll take they'll take you know part of their lead from them. So we'll see what happens happens down the road. Yeah, um, yeah really good stuff, guys. Now, Seth, you and I were talking off the air earlier. Uh, speaking of NASCAR and what's in the future for NASCAR, uh, there's a little bit of rumblings of maybe we will have uh, races that are timed rather than you know set to set to a distance. So, uh, uh, what are you hearing? And I know a lot of this revolves around that uh, Charlotte Roval race. Uh, but uh, what are your thoughts? And we just have a discussion on uh, NASCAR races, the time versus distance. Well, there's still a lot of questions about it. Uh, right now, it's more about the Roval race because the track at Charlotte Moore Speedway wants it to be a 500-mile race. NASCAR right now is billing it as a 500-kilometer race, but they haven't nailed down a final distance. At least that's the last they said at the media tour. There's been rumblings that could be a timed race as well, and there's also rumblings that maybe not this year, but in the coming years, some other races, maybe in the Xfinity Series, maybe in the Truck Series, or maybe just the road courses, could be timed races. How this would affect stuff like the overtime line, uh, red flags, other issues that in NASCAR a little bit more unique than some other series. There's still a lot of questions. Uh, I don't know if they would even have an overtime line because once the time runs out, 
Isn't that the end in IMSA racing? Isn't that the end in the occasions in Formula One or IndyCar where they are forced to go to timed races? Yeah, interesting. You know, I think that, you know, the timed race is most appealing to, obviously, the programming executives at the television who, you know, who... uh, where they, they try to schedule everything out and, and plan it accordingly, and then when something runs over, they have to, uh, you know, scramble for a minute. You know, and I, I've seen it in uh, things like um, the NCAA basketball, where we've got, uh, they give a two-hour slot for each game, and then if one happens to go into overtime or if it just moves slowly, they just, oh, the, you know, now uh, Kentucky will be starting on ESPN3, and then we'll switch back over here. And but uh, so it's really appealing to the television executives. But I mean, what do you? What would you consider a like an ideal time length um, for a NASCAR race? Because I've I've watched NASCAR my whole life. They really like the five hundred, the five hundred. Whether it's five hundred miles or like five hundred laps at, at Bristol or Charlotte, they they have a couple of four hundreds now at Pocono and Dover. But, uh, you know, is it, uh, is it a three-hour time slot, two and a half? Uh, you know, you've got the younger generation with a much shorter attention span. Who doesn't want to watch a race that's going to push the four-hour limit? Well, the magic number that keeps popping up is th- either three hours or three, three and a half hours. Uh, more than likely, it would be one or the other. Uh, that being said, there's also uh, an idea that I did hear and. I don't know if this would happen this year, if it would happen in a couple years. Take the Talladega Xfinity race, for example, which is a 315-mile race. And they're just using this, the rumor in this case is using this as an example. Instead of it being 315 miles, three hours and 15 minutes. So if you look at some of the other tracks, a lot of them are either 400 or 500 miles. Out of the 36 races... 22 are 400 miles or longer in length. Doing the math on those, a lot of them come out to about four hours, four and a half hours, maybe five hours, depending on the track. If you were to cut those down a little bit, say instead of 400 miles, four hours, for some it would cut maybe 20, 30 laps. Others it might cut 40 or 50 laps depending on the track and the kinds of cautions that happen throughout the day. Now, Gray, you've been involved in NASCAR your whole life. And uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on this kind of really changing up the game to when you, when you know what lap you have to get to, to you know what time you have to get to? How would this, how would this change the strategy of planning the race? Well, I mean, you know, if, they, if it started out and they said, okay, it's going to be a time race, we're not going to have a mileage, a set mileage to complete. we got to finish this in time. Obviously, there's a lot of things that go into play. You're going to have cautions, the, the normal cautions that you have during the course of the race, you know, for, for incidents on the track and track cleanup and things like that. If they continue this stage racing, then you've got, you know, a couple more cautions involved there. Um <laughs> I understand what they're trying to do. They, they, most races today are in are around three hours in the cup side. You know, back when we used to run 500 miles at Rockingham and 500 miles at Dover, those races could encroach on four hours, no doubt about it. 
And you've seen what happened there. They shortened over from 500 to 400, and now it's in that three-hour three hour range. You know, I think that's probably the, 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 the time that people want to see. You, you, the NFL, the first game of the day, kicks off at 1 and generally ends between 4 and 4.30 or 4.25. So you're probably looking at a three-hour and 15-minute game, you know, there. And that seems to be, you know, perfect for the, for, for the afternoon. For that, so I'm saying if they wanted to do, you know, really probably what they need to do is look at mileage. I wouldn't say, you know, doing a doing a set time because basically what they would do eventually if they said, okay, the race is going to be X amount of time, well then they throw a caution uh, with uh, ten or fifteen minutes left so they could bunch up the field and have a race to the end till the clock expires. You see what I'm saying there? So I think basically, you know, I, I don't. I don't know that it would work. I, I would, I would, I wouldn't like to see him do that in in uh, in IndyCar. I think IndyCar races typically, uh, and Joey can speak to this. IndyCar races typically run what two and a half hours, something Max. in that range. Yeah, it's something in that range. And uh, you know, um, I don't think they need to fool with it there. I think you know, if NASCAR really wants to do something to shorten races, I think uh, some of the some of the races they need to. Uh, to uh, shorten, I mean, they've got 36 races in the course of the year. I think I don't. I wouldn't like for them to, you know, leave the Daytona 500 as the, as the Daytona 500, and and the Southern 500 as the as the 500. If they want to keep a 600 mile race to build it as an endurance race for both driver and, and 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 vehicle, keep that. But a lot of the other races during the course of the year, they could certainly shorten some of those and get to get to within you know get in that three hour or less window i, yeah, I mean i go ahead well no so i agree now now we've seen we have seen timed races in indycar and back in cart where they they had the the two hour if the race was going too long and these are uh, you know strictly on road courses where they they said now it's a timed race and largely that was due to uh you know the to weather well, the weather had the agreement with ABC Television because usually there was a golf match coming up next. Yeah, I always remember that it was always it was always golf that uh, IndyCar was up against on, or that Cart was up against on ABC. Mm-hmm. So that they've done the time races, but they were never billed as time races. They but if they started to go long, they would become a timed race. So now this is a timed race, and really you're throwing a wrench in the strategy of these guys in the middle of the game, which which I don't necessarily agree with. Yeah. But Gray, I, I agree to your point that some of these races we don't need to we don't need to build them as five hundred or, or four hundred. It, it can be uh, you know, whatever distance that they well, feel feel is gonna fit into the television window nicely and and not make it just a marathon for the viewer. Right. You can say five hundred and 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 be you know, a 500K, which is 312 miles. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's and that's done at Phoenix now. Phoenix Phoenix has done that, and, and they call it the such and such 500, but actually it's 500 kilometers and amounts to 312 laps. I, I, you know, but I still like your traditional races need to remain. I think that's... Oh, absolutely, you know, that's, yeah. yeah that's no no part, doubt. That's part of the sport. I mean, you, would, you wouldn't want to see them come in and make the Indy 500, the, the Indy, Indy 400, or the... You know, a, a time that, and obviously the, that would the, never happen. The Indy three-hour. Yeah, exactly. I think it's something that, you know, every society's changing and everybody's looking for answers, 
and 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 looking looking at their TV ratings and things that they can do to to spike the ratings. And again, I think a lot of the issues are, are societal. You know, there's a new generation coming along that you know uh, doesn't want to sit for for that length of time. You know, they get they bang bang. You know, they want to see it and and, and go. Another thing that's going to come into play if NASCAR does this or any sanctioning body, you're going to have to adjust prices because, you know, people are going to say, well, I paid, you know, $100 for my ticket, and this was a 500-mile race, and now you're cutting it back to uh, $300 or $400 or whatever. Uh, you know, let's have, you know, they're going to look and want a, 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 an adjustment, uh, you know, in, in the ticket prices too. So, I mean, that's one thing that um, needs to be looked at, too. And can these track operators, are they willing to um, to do it? And then race teams, too, are going to look at, hey, they don't want to reduce their purse because their cost really essentially is the same whether you run 400 miles, 300 miles, or 500 miles. Your cost is, uh, you know, their cost is going to be the same. So, um, you know, it's, that's one more thing to kind of muddy the water uh, when, you, when you look at uh, – Reducing races. Good points, Greg. Or, or distance. Good points, Greg. Now, Joe, you have a couple comments on this? Yeah, I think that a few things that come to mind on this is whenever you're talking about shortening up the race, if you're, if I'm a track promoter, I'm looking at this saying, well, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this because a, um, you know, you're asking me not only to shorten up my my time that I'm going to have this series here. But that's also going to permit, as Gray pointed to, the ticket cost. But I also look at it from concessions because that final yeah. hour, hour and a half that, that the tracks get off of concessions. It's a lot is, of hot dogs. There's a ton. Oh, yeah, hot dogs, sure. But, um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, so that's one element of it. I will say this is that getting on a track for a NASCAR weekend on a Friday of a triple header weekend, Friday is an 18-hour day. It is a hard, difficult haul. And because usually the trucks run that night, we've got qualifying during the day, we've got practices, we've got media availabilities, there's a lot going on there that the fans don't know about. That said, I wouldn't mind seeing a situation play out where maybe we're seeing the trucks and the Xfinity Series maybe swap on occasion and share weekends when the Cup's not running. I don't think we need a 36-race schedule. I've been clear about that many times. I do think we need to keep traditional races the same, you know, the Daytona 500, 500 miles. If we're going to keep the season finale at Homestead, which I'm not in total favor of, I think that needs to revolve. I agree with Kevin Harvick on that because it needs to be similar to the Super Bowl in some respects. We're never going to move the Super Bowl of NASCAR, so we might as well move its season finale and rotate it among the final ten and make sure that every market that is a major market gets some sort of chance to see this show because not everybody can afford to fly from California to Florida. Um but there another another way about it is would we really be talking about this if the racing product was better if the racing product was right where it needs to be everybody would be paying attention i you know and nobody ever complained about this back in 2000 about is there are the races too long the fact of the matter is we enjoyed the racing we saw so we didn't bitch and moan about what the length of the race was we actually didn't want it to end which is how we've come up with all these manufactured strategies. Like we've got to manipulate things like stages and we got to manipulate the green, white checker. You know, you want to give me a green, white checker. Fine. Don't give me stages. If the racing is good and it's pure and it's the way it's supposed to be. And it's a quality product. You don't need to manipulate it with all this stuff in the middle. 
And then you're not going to have to worry about fans, you know, complaining about the length that the races are. I've heard that the NFL's trying to find ways to speed up the game because it's four hours to watch a football game. So whenever Vince McMahon, the WWE founder and all that, came out with the XFL idea last week, he talked about making sure the game stayed two hours. I actually think that keeping NASCAR traditional races at their time at their set mileage is good. But if we're going to move it, let's move it to where other races for cup race weekends are the Xfinity mileage. So um, I'm, I'm okay with that. And maybe we find a way to, to make it to where Xfinity and trucks, you know, compensate each other with the same type of mileage, because honestly, the purse that's given for trucks, unless you're the champion, and in some cases, even when you're a champion, isn't enough to sustain itself unless you have factory support. So in many cases, those guys are always pulling in the red anyway when it comes to the books. So I think there's got to be some way to kind of level this out, and I think that's going to lead to them short not only shortening races in some capacity, but also shortening the season in some capacity. Yeah, I, I, I agree with one thing you said in there was they do need to move the, 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 the uh, final race of the season. That needs to be on a rotating basis as well as the all-star race. I think that would uh, – that needs to be changed up. That'd be one improvement to the series that I would like to see as well. I know that I'm a an IndyCar homer here because I obviously I write for the series as uh, I was introduced by Frank on. But when I look at it, and you and these are sheer facts. When you go look at facts, I understand NASCAR holding like a four million weekend rate as far as viewership, and that's a very very strong number. At the same time, that number is not nearly as strong as it used to be. They're trending in the wrong direction. Whereas you look at IndyCar, and yeah, the number's significantly less in comparison. You know, it's 1.14 million. But I look at that situation, and one is growing at a 30% year-over-year rate, that being IndyCar, and the other one is falling at about that same rate. Eventually, those two are going to meet if something doesn't change soon. And I think that... If you're NASCAR, you've got to be able to look at yourself and be honest and transparent with yourself and understand that there isn't a lot that IndyCar is doing different. They're finding a way to keep costs down. They're not changing a lot of things when it comes to racing. The only thing you could say that they might offer that's a little unique that maybe you don't agree with is double points at, at Indianapolis and at the season finale in Sonoma. But compare that to stage racing a million cautions in a race, everything they can to, to keep a race going longer, to keep a fan in the seat, to keep them buying concessions. So when I hear timed races, I kind of laugh at it in some respects. They've got to find a way to change this program up a little bit. Yeah. Well, just one thought on your uh, million cautions. Uh, cautions last year, even with the stages, were actually down about 31%. How many average a race? Because I bet you I saw less in the Rolex 24. Oh, there definitely were less than the Rolex 24, no doubt about that. that was I mean, a, yeah, yeah, that was an unusual, that might have been an aberration, because yeah. typically it, it, there's it's four. the second lowest, it, it was the second lowest, the 1992 Rolex, I want to say, only had one caution. I, I'm glad and, you and that, and, and that was the that was the prior uh, distance record, 1992, that's the record they broke. Yeah, which, by the I'm way, the, which, by the way, the distance record was... Uh, 2,876 miles, which is uh, you can get to New York from from uh, New York to L.A. and go a little bit farther. So that that's actually quite impressive, the 24 hours. 
I'm I'm glad you brought up the IMSA though because that is a NASCAR owned series and the races are timed and we only have one 24 hour race on the entire schedule the Rolex 24 in Daytona we got the six hours in Watkins Glen we got 12 hours of Sebring but there's only one 24 and it's very well watched. Fox did a good job of, of changing out the coverage, but making sure it stayed on one of the major networks that they have uh, for the most part. And, you know, it, it stands out. It we, made, we They found a way, IMSA did, or Grand Am really, a long time ago, even before Grand Am, they found a way to make sure that that race stayed unique. And that's the one thing, is when you go to a typical NASCAR weekend that's not Daytona, which I don't know what the hell Daytona Day is, by the way, but when you go to something that's that's unique, you enjoy it. It's it's an experience that is totally different from anything else. And when I go to a NASCAR race, I don't really see an experience that's different than anywhere else I go to. Mile and a half or mile and a half, and the show is essentially the same. Uh, well, saturation so, too, you know that. Yeah, and that uh, is is part of the part of the problem, you know, and, too. They're saturated. Yeah. So you talk about timed races. I see it in IMSA, and we see that it's a quality product too. And we also see that it's not nearly as backed as much as IndyCar or, you know, NHRA or NASCAR, things like that. But people know that if they turn it on randomly, they can watch it. And I'm sure at an overtime average, they've done really good with the Rolex 24 this year. But that said, <coughs> they've got to find some way to keep things unique and not oversaturate the product. And you thought on the 24, now that you brought that up with uh... – you know, how it's totally unique. There was a, I was, you know, doing some social media stuff, reading some troll posts like I like to do, and somebody had come up with the great idea to say, wouldn't, wouldn't this just be the best weekend to start IndyCar? Because there's no major sports and blah, blah, this and that. And, and of course, everybody came on him with like, uh, but it's the 24, right? I, you know, the Rolex 24 is the only race where you can see active um, IndyCar drivers, Formula One drivers, and NASCAR drivers, as well as past champions of that sport and current sports car drivers, all on the same track at the same time. Why would you mess with that? That that is totally unique, and it's the late winter date that allows that to happen. I mean, you know, why would you uh, why would you ever want to uh, go against that? Yeah, it brings, it brings people out of cabin fever. You know, it's, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that that's. I mean, I look forward. I look forward to it. I mean, that's kind of that's the uh, that's the start of racing season every year, and has been for a number of years. Ever since the Cup cars quit running at Riverside, the twenty four hours of Daytona is the is the official start of racing season to me. Yeah, I mean, I I don't disagree in the slightest. I think that this is the first year that I remember in a long time that we saw F1 talent come over here. And so we're starting to see the beginning of a transition in motorsports and just in, you know, in sports in general, but in motorsports specifically for this, you know, we're seeing guys come over and they're starting to understand that there's life beyond their own circuits, their own walls. Uh, and maybe they've known that for a while. Maybe sponsors didn't permit them or the series didn't permit them. But now, you know, money talks and the – the reality is is that there's so much money floating around and, and manufacturers want this specific talent to do, go and do this and go and do that. And I think now we're starting to see manufacturers rule the roost a little bit more than they used to. 
and and call the shots a little bit more than they used to. And that's why, and in some ways, guys like Alonzo, who kind of call their own shots in some respects, uh, we're starting to see a lot of that transition. But I, I like it. I mean, diversity is needed. We haven't had diversity in motorsports in a long time up until those last six, seven months. Um, and it's it's definitely welcomed. And I think this is just the beginning of what we're going to see for quite a while. You know, and, and you go back, like you, like you said, and it's all about there's money in the sport now, and that's why back in the old days when guys like Andretti and Foyt and Unser and these guys ran everything, they did it to make a living because they couldn't, you know, to, 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 to augment what they made because – the USAC dirt car circuit didn't didn't pay a whole lot. They could go and make a foray into uh, to uh, <coughs> stock cars and pick up extra money and, and and that kind of thing. So basically, those guys did it because they needed to back then. And and still the same thing. Same thing. There was money to be won, just like there's money be money to be made now. And I think these guys are, are realizing that they can branch out. And and make more money, and, and and you know, and that's all about uh, improving their brand. And they're and by doing that, what are they going to do? They're going to make more money. Yeah, I, I think when just one final thought on this. I think it's interesting when you look at F one and you look at NASCAR and you look at the similarities. It's not very often. Part of the reason there's not very many NASCAR drivers at Rolex is because of how many races there are for the NASCAR season, how many demands there are for them to do media and public and, and being at the track and test days. And it's just they want to try to actually get time with their families when they have it. And in some ways, that's cost NASCAR the chance to have a star like Kyle Larson come back and do the Rolex. And you look at F1, they're finally learning life beyond their walls. You had you know, Lando Norris and McC- Claren development driver. You had Lance Stroll, uh, William Sophomore, and then you had Fernando Alonso, two-time champion, involved in the sport. But NASCAR was actually overruled. There was more F1 talent than NASCAR talent in the Rolex, and I don't remember the last time I've been able to say that. And so I think that when you're NASCAR, you've got to have kind of a reflection, understand maybe we need to look beyond our own walls a little bit more. Maybe we under, need to understand that what we have right now is is really good talent that needs to be exposed because that's the only way to help expose the NASCAR brand because NASCAR is so oversaturated right now. Excellent final thought, Joey. Uh, that being said, we are just about out of time, so I want to go real quick. Uh, Seth, final thought from you. Uh, ben Kennedy will be transitioning from a driver role to be the head of the NASCAR Camping World Truck Series. Good for him, man. Um, Richard, final thought from you? Uh, I, just reiterating, really, the, the point on drivers, you know, diversifying a little bit and stepping out of their, their sort of market. And, you know, you see, obviously, you've seen it with Alonso the last year or so. And, you know, some of the other guys coming across, I think it's great for the sport, it's great for the spectators, um, and it's great for the drivers as well. You know, the, hopefully it'll show off a little bit of the driver's personality. They can step out of their comfort zone and, and do something. And, uh, yeah, I think it's really, really good for the sport. Absolutely, Gray. What one last uh, one last thought from you? Uh, today was the first day of uh, winter testing. NASCAR Cup cars were at uh, Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and quickly, uh, some of the top ten uh, in speeds were William Byron, Ryan Newman, Kurt Busch, Kyle Larson, Eric Jones, Brad Keselowski, Stenhouse Jr., Casey Kane, Darrell Wallace Jr., and Chris Buescher. Ah, oh, that's your uh, Ryan Newman right up there near the top, man. Good for you guys. Listen, 
I enjoyed talking to you guys tonight. Uh, next week, we'll be back on. We'll do our Daytona 500 preview next week. Uh, we've got the uh, the little clash race coming up. Um, looking forward to that. That's always kind of fun. Until uh, next week, uh, this is Drafting the Circus. You're listening to the Hoobazoo Radio Network. Good night. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 